Morning. So children, would you like to come out to the front? Because I just want to talk to you for a few minutes. So come out and find a seat. And if we could put the first slide up, that would be great. Have a seat. So you get a good view. Some of the children today, and some of the adults actually, have been throwing these at me at my new Christmas jumper. And I thought I'd give these out during the sermon. If you land one, five minutes gets taken off. But if you miss, two minutes gets added on, Deb. So. Rook, do you want to try it? No, right. Right, right, right. So, uh, we've been uh, getting into Christmas, haven't we? And um, last week we had the Nativity. And tonight we've got the carol service. And, we're, and it's great. We're getting, really getting close to Christmas. How many more sleeps till Christmas? I didn't even know that. Two for you. Oh, it's two for her. <laughs> I think it's three, Ivy. It has to be three. So, but I thought today what we could look at is other, other views of Christmas. How does Christmas look when you go to the shops? How does Christmas look when we look at the, watch TV? So that's what we're going to do this morning, folks. Okay. Sorry? Okay. Could you sit down, Brian? We're just trying to start the service. So, what we're going to do... Is, can somebody help Brian? Have we got some security here? <laughs> Seriously, Brian, why can't you just sit down like everybody else? We're, we're Chris. Yep. This is just being delivered to the church for you. Seriously. Seriously. <laughs> that wasn't in the script. Seriously, hang on. Some, it's not a trick. Is it a trick? Is it one of your jokes? I give you a trick. It's a present for you. Seriously, somebody just came to church today and brought this. So it's for me. Have you seen this? Somebody brought a present. Special delivery. Somebody brought a present for me today. Isn't that good? Sir, you could, you could get an idea from this, couldn't you? For the associate minister. <laughs> Listen, normally... Normal. Isn't that beautiful? Look, how, look at the bow on the top. Isn't it lovely? Look at the presents. There's berries and it's lovely colour. It just looks, reminds me of reindeer. But normally, I would wait till Christmas Day, but shall I open it now? Yeah. Shall I open it now? See what it is. Let's open it. Let's see what it is. Let's see what it is, everybody. Because I can't wait. Why wait till Christmas Day when you can have your presents now, right? right. So... Oh, wow, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Well, this is amazing. Oh, it's fantastic. It's really good. Fantastic. Look, it's a tin. It's a beautiful tin. Oh, my goodness, it's like a cooking tin. It's got china and cups and saucers, and it's got biscuits on. Have you seen that? Have you seen it? What a fantastic tin. Wouldn't you like a tin for Christmas? Isn't it great? Oh, hey, you know what? Somebody's put something inside my tin. Do you think it's best? Shall I have a look? Shall I have a look? Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, my goodness. Where did this come from? The Amazon did this. It's disgusting. Somebody's put horrible things in my beautiful tin. What kind of sick person gave you this, Brian? Look, they put all coloured stuff in like that. Look. It's horrible. What kind of horrible person would put... Is there a bin round here somewhere? Because this is just, this is too much, honestly. You've got, you got a bin? Let's get rid of all these nasty things. 
And now, let's get, can you just put that out of the way? But look, no, look, 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 look at my tin. What a fantastic Christmas present, yeah? Because look, I can keep it in my house. I could put it like that. It's a tin. It's a tin. Look, Lydia. Can you not see? I could put it like that. I could. I could. (laughs) All right. Well. Well, is that what it was? So that was the present, not the tin. (laughs) I'm getting a heckle left, right, said to here. So, actually, you know what? You're right. And in this clean bin, and it is clean, a bit later, just sit down, nobody's going nobody's to grab any mass rush. In a minute, in a minute, just want to say one thing before we have a mad rush for, cho- for chocolate coins. Whoops, sorry, sweetheart. That, but sometimes, that was a bit silly, wasn't it? Because I got all excited about the wrapping and the tin, and, and really the most important thing was what was inside. Just sit down again. Let's just sit down again. <laughs> calm down, right? Just calm down, right? That sometimes, isn't it great that at Christmas we've got Christmas trees and shops and lights and tinsel and wrapping and even presents? And they're all good, but if we're not careful, sometimes we can miss the most important thing of Christmas. We can get all excited about the things about Christmas and we can forget about the person at the the centre of Christmas, not Santa Claus. The person at the centre of Christmas is the baby Jesus. And that's that's God's gift to us. And today, we're going to talk about, I've lost in all that, the changer. We're going to talk about some of the things about Christmas Fancy wrapping that can distract us and that we can get all excited about. Fancy ads and fancy talk. Okay, but let me pray just now before we have a mad rush for a couple, two chocolate coins each and then we'll sit down, all right? So let's pray. Let's just be silent for a moment. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for, uh, for Christmas cards, for presents, for trees, for lights for wrapping, for food, for family, for all the wonderful things, Lord, that we see in Christmas. But help us not to miss the most important thing, which is you, baby Jesus, today. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to sing a song which talks about the wrapping of Christmas, and it says the wrapping that Jesus came in wasn't all fancy and in a beautiful wrapping paper with a bow. It was actually a drafty stable with an open door. Let's take, why don't you take three coins each and then go and sit down. Thank you. And then sit down in your seats again, folks. Having survived the, the chaos of mad rush, let's talk a little bit now about the next thing. Fancy ads. Why do we buy stuff? Why do we buy stuff? Because we like stuff, don't we? We like stuff. But there's another reason that we buy stuff. I uh, listened to a, a marketing podcast, and uh, they were saying the other week, they did this, did this uh, survey across tens of thousands of people, and uh, 84% of people enjoy the experience of buying as much as the thing they're buying. 
that for 84% of us, most of us basically, the experience of shopping is as important as the products that we get. So the, 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 uh, the experience of going out and wandering through the shops and trying clothes on or trying perfumes or the experience of um, been going probably, I don't know, four, five, six years now, something like that. They've got bigger and bigger each year, bigger and bigger budgets spent on these ads. John Lewis, Sainsbury's, uh, Tesco, Argos, they all put literally millions of pounds into their Christmas ads now. And there's actually a ranking, uh, which is the best Christmas ad, which store has got the best Christmas ad this year, is, is you'll find in the news, you'll find on websites, each ad trying to say, this is what Christmas is about. Each ad tries to convince us that this is what Christmas is really about. So how about you? Are you teleaddicts? Can you recognise a Christmas ad? I'm going to show you a series of this year's Christmas ads, okay? I think there's eight. And at the end, yeah, you've got it. So Sarah's got it sussed. Right, you've got it sussed, right, okay. At the end, we'll see who's the, who's the biggest teleaddict, who can recognise these Christmas ads. So just watch these and listen. Sprouts have gone and Kevin's here. Shall we with festive cheer? Bring those mince pies over here with cream! If only somebody could put lots of little shops into one big shop so I could find the perfect gift for all the ridiculously hard to find for people in my life. What? Like that? Nope. Makes you want to do that, doesn't it? <laughs> I've been told all week I'm doing it wrong. But I reckon that's it. So, uh, you were shouting most of them out. Which, which, what, which was the first one? Aldi, very good. Next one? Anybody? Ooh, Boots. That was Boots. Good guess. It was Boots. I think a lot of people shouted this one out. Ikea. Ikea. Do you know what their tagline is, their strapline, Ikea's, at the moment? The wonderful everyday. Well done. The wonderful everyday. Excellent. What was the next one? Do you know what their strapline is? What's their tagline? Nearly. Living well for less. Living well for less. And the next one? 
And their strapline is... That's really, really been a powerful strapline from Tesco that everybody knows. Every little helps. Uh, What about this one? Argos. What's their tagline at the moment? Find it, get it, Argos it. Find it, get it, Argos it. This one. Easy one. And their tagline is... Never knowingly undersold. Strange. Kind of not a positive statement. Almost a negative statement, but, but very memorable. People, people remember that. Never knowingly undersold at John Lewis. And uh, was, I think there was, yeah, one more. Martin Spencer jumpers. Sorry, I'm still, I'm still doing it. Every time. <laughs> Spend it well. Spend it well, say Marks and Spencers. But, and actually, you know, it's entertaining. A lot of money is put into those ads. When we actually get into the shops or when we get our products home, often they're not quite what we thought, not as good as what we thought, don't last as long as we thought. And if there's an offer, it's never quite the best offer that we thought it was when we went into the shop. In fact, often we see that phrase, don't we? That things are not often as good as we thought and terms and conditions apply. You only get that if you buy this and that. You only get that if you're a member of this and you've got this kind of card. Or you only get that for so so many months and then you go, then your rate goes up to this much, uh, which is the normal rate. Terms and conditions apply is is a phrase we're used to seeing a lot. Now, I want to, do you know, do you know that God, have you seen God's adverts? Have you seen them? God uses ads. God uses advertising. In fact, God has always advertised in some amazing ways. If you look in the Old Testament, from burning bushes that never catch fire, to talking donkeys, to angels, to thundering voices, to silent whispers, God has always advertised his presence. And actually, many hundreds of years before Jesus, God was advertising and saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something really amazing. Listen up. In fact, 700 years before God was born, before Jesus was born, God started giving clues to people. And uh, he he wrote it down. God advertised what was coming next, especially in books like we've heard already today. Isaiah chapter 9, the people who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. To those living in deep darkness, a new light has dawned. A son will be born. He will be wonderful counselor. That's an advert. Or Isaiah 7. The Lord will give you a sign. The the virgin will conceive and bear a son and he will be called Emmanuel. It's an advert. It's all there. Or Micah, as we heard a few weeks ago, even tells us where it will all happen. In Micah, he says, but you, Bethlehem, although you are the smallest among the towns, from you will come a ruler. God has always advertised his presence. And God God has had a tagline for this, a strapline, which is simple. Emmanuel, God with us. That's God's tagline for Christmas. God with you, right there, wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you, wherever you can be, God with you. That's God's strapline this Christmas. And God advertises today. <clears throat> God's adverts are near you. Here's a, an advert I saw from God uh, three weeks ago through my bedroom window. Somebody set the sky on fire at half past seven in the morning and it wasn't me. Just time after time after time. God advertises his presence through the structure of a single snowflake, through the first birds that we hear in the morning. God is always advertising his presence if we can see his ads, if we, if we are willing to have eyes open and ears hearing to listen to his ads. 
And the writer of Psalm 19 says about this ad, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The sky is shouting, look at me! Look at God, the sky is shouting. That's what the psalm, the writer says, the psalmist. Time for one more ad. Actually, two ads, okay? This is the John Lewis ad from 2015 in full. This ad won many awards. And then we'll see another one. So let me just show you this. Watch this. I would like to leave this city. This old town don't smell too pretty. And I can feel the warning signs running around my mind. And when I leave this planet, you know I'd stay, but I just can't stand it. And I can feel the warning signs running around my mind. So here I a moving ad. A lot of people felt a man on the moon ad it was called John Lewis 2015 won multiple awards and topped the Christmas ads list easily it was by far the ad of that year, the Christmas ad of that year it was a moving story about loneliness, about kindness about one girl's search for something, about connecting people over huge distances and about a present at Christmas quite a touching ad A friend of mine called Dan Rackham set up an organization called Go Chatter Videos. I met him at a conference some years ago. He does brilliant videos for churches. And he produced his own version of that ad, his own version of the John Lewis 2015 ad. It's it's on gochattervideos.com. It's also about one little girl searching. It's also about connecting people, and it's also about a present at Christmas. So now watch Dan's version of the same ad. I would like to leave this city, this old town, don't smell too pretty now. I can feel the warning signs running around my mind. And when 
Sorry, could you move it back one slide? That Dan's response to the, to the John Lewis ad was to make his own ad, to say, actually, here's a question that people really are asking. Are you there, God? The little girl asks. Who are you, God? Do you really love me, God? And God's Christmas present comes on Christmas Day. And there's the message of Dan's ad is, this Christmas... No, you have been loved. Terms and conditions do not apply. Deb. Okay, remember, let's light the Simpsons. And uh, if in case you don't know the Simpsons, there's uh, Homer, the guy on the right. He's, he's very dysfunctional. Taken. <laughs> <laughs> He's very dysfunctional, unlike people in this church. He's a very dysfunctional character, always getting thing wrong, things wrong, always messing up, always trying to cheat the system. It always backfires. You always generally feel sorry for him. Margie's wife, she's, uh, she tries to do things well. She's quite quirky. Lisa, the little girl on the left, she always gets stuff right. She's eight years old. She's so smart, so brainy. It's very sexist, this, this program. It was made a long time ago. She always gets things right. She's so smart. And Bart... On the right, he's telling you, he's always into mischief, always trying to make trouble. If there's trouble, Bart is at the centre of it. And then there's Maggie the baby, who tends to have a smaller role. But on one episode, they're driving down the road, and the uh, home is driving, and Marge is singing, How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? And Homer goes, Seven! <laughs> and Lisa goes, Dad, it's rhetorical questions. Homer goes, Okay. Eight! To which Lisa says, Dad, do you even know what, what a rhetorical question is? To which Homer says, do I know what a rhetorical question is? <laughs> Sometimes it's brilliant, humour within humour. Rhetoric, rhetorical question, 
we think of sometimes as a question that doesn't need an answer, that doesn't require an answer, doesn't expect an answer. It's a statement, a, a, a dramatic moment, or it can be sarcasm, but we don't get an answer back. The other uh, way that we think of rhetoric today is hot air, isn't it? We think, oh, it's just rhetoric. They're just making it all. It's lies, basically. It's just rhetoric. That's a shame because rhetoric in its original sense is actually was a, was a, was a, a study of the ancient world, an honourable study in the ancient world. And great rhetoric, great speech writers and great speech givers, we still admire today, like Obama or even whatever you think of them, Blair and Cameron, brilliant, brilliant speakers, phenomenal orators. It was a, 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 an honourable art uh, a study, uh, the art of persuasion, said Cicero. Sweet speech designed to persuade, says Aristotle in his book on rhetoric. Speech designed to persuade. And uh, it was one of only three or four subjects you could study at university. If you went in Bible times, if you went to university in Greece, mainly at the time, you could only study like three things, theology, philosophy, rhetoric. There may have been a fourth one. Maths. But it was a great, it was a great study, a uh, subject to study and to become proficient in the art of rhetoric, the art of being able to persuade people. And the Bible writers took the art of persuasion very seriously, as did Paul, as did Jesus, because there are ways that we can speak which are more persuasive. We've thought about taglines earlier this morning. Whatever we think of them, you might think, well, I just don't think much of those. They're still in your head, whether you want them there or not. You know, get Brexit done, you know, all that stuff. Three-word statements, they, 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 they enter people's uh, inner being and they become a part of them and they're very powerful if you get them right, very powerful. Great rhetoric can be a strap line like the ones we've talked about, a speech designed to persuade, which a, a, a good politician would be able to do. Grand poetry, it could be an appeal, a lot of appeals. Paul makes a lot of appeals in his letters. The last essay I ever did as for my studying, the, earlier this year, was a study of Pauline rhetoric. So rhetoric that Paul uses in his letter to the Galatians. The hyperbole, the structure of his arguments, the insults that he gives, that he makes towards them. You foolish Galatians, he said. Why don't you go castrate yourselves, he says. Speech designed to persuade all forms of rhetoric, devices that Paul uses. Or it can be simple, fantastic, memorable lines. I came, I saw, I conquered. The lady's not for turning. I have a dream, are all embedded within us deeply, within our inner being, whether we want them there or not, because they're great rhetoric. So today, just for 15 minutes or so, I thought, let's just look at some of the grand rhetoric, the grand poetry in the Bible around Christmas. And just, just open it up a bit and just enjoy it. So you might not learn much, but hopefully you'll just enjoy some of, this, some of what we're going to talk about in these next few minutes. The grand poetry, the grand rhetoric around Christmas. But which passage should we choose? Because there's so much. Some of it we've heard already today. Some of the great poetry around Christmas, going back to Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. To those living in the land of deep darkness, a new light has dawned. It's powerful stuff. It draws you in. Wonderful the way these writers have put this together. Or... I thought perhaps we could go to the New Testament and look at Mary's song in chapter 1, uh, which the church often calls the Magnificat. We don't like using 
Latin words for some reason in Baptist churches, so we call it Mary's song. But here's the Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has done good things for me. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, and holy is his name. It's a wonderful song that Mary sang. Whether she made it up or it was a song that was known at the time that she sang, we don't know. But it's great poetry around Christmas. But I thought we could do either of those. Let's do this one, which is John, John's grand and poetic introduction to his gospel. John chapter 1. Many of you will know it, some of you may not. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to it, John chapter 1. I don't know what page it's on. But let's just have a look at this and the poetry and the drama and the suspense, actually, in the way that John writes. It's a bit like an English lesson. Let's just open it up a bit. So let's just look at the first lines. In the beginning, says John, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. A very dramatic opening. John takes us to the utmost points of time and space in this opening line. In the beginning predates even creation because creation when God created the the world and the universe was an event that God made happen but before that says John in the beginning was this thing called the word and although we know now the word means Jesus that's who he's talking about so what 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 is this word that John's talking about three times in the first line and he holds the suspense until I think verse 17, something like that, where it actually says Jesus Christ. But it's the word, the word, the word, the word. This, this drama from the beginning of time around this idea of the word. And in the beginning, predates creation, echoes the first line of the entire Bible. The first line of Genesis starts, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, only God. But John now puts up there other equal importance in the beginning, the word. Right in the beginning, before creation, the word was. A powerful idea. And he talks then about the word, this word. And he still hasn't said what this is. Somehow participating in creation. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Then a little bit later, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then that tantalizing idea, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it, or the darkness has never overcome it. Moving, poetic ideas of pictures that John is throwing up, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's look a bit further. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who proceeds from the father. So now he's talking about a son and a father full of grace and truth. It's beginning to become a little bit more explicit. John finally breaks the suspense in verse 14. Starts talking about the word becoming flesh. And in verse 17, Jesus Christ. Until now, as far as ancient uh, 
Jews, Hebrews were concerned, creation was the most important event ever. It must be. What could be more important than God creating something out of nothing? But John says here is something of equal importance in the beginning, the word. And then he introduces us. Eventually we get this idea that when he says the word, he's actually talking about the voice of God. He's actually talking about God's words in Genesis 1. And God said that the power of God that we see in Genesis is his words. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the land and the sea be separated. Let the light and the darkness be separated. And it happened. God's words made it happen. And John's saying, God's words, God's word has now become something tangible and real in Bethlehem around 0 AD. Strange ideas to the first listeners and ideas that we shouldn't uh, gloss over because we know the passage or we may know the passage. That God's voice, this is the mystery of John 1. Actually, there's a bigger mystery of John 1, which we'll come to in a minute. This is a mystery of John 1, that God's voice somehow is independent of God and yet originates with God. Is this word that comes forth, that comes forth, that separates chaos, that brings order out of chaos, separates dark and light, and this word becomes flesh? Which is, I think... Is this the most profound line in the entire Bible, is a question. Is this the most profound line? And the line is, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. I think it could be. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as the writer um, Eugene Peterson says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Wow, you know, this is the... This is the This is the titanic power of God that separates light from darkness. The cataclysmic power of God that brings order out of of chaos, that brings something out of nothing, becomes flesh. It's an astonishing idea. Becomes a real baby. And not just a baby, but a baby born to an unmarried mother in a nowhere town, in an obscure place that nobody's ever heard of. It is a startling claim. It is an outrageous claim. It is the outrageous claim of our faith. That somehow the power of God in all its majesty and splendor and dominion and might becomes a helpless, vulnerable baby in obscurity is the outrageous claim of our faith. The God who created everything chooses to be with his people in a more special way than ever before is also a unique idea among world religions, that God would lower himself, would stoop to do such a thing. Other religions are all about us trying to climb up to God, trying to better ourselves, trying to somehow touch heaven. But Christianity turns that round and says, the power of God became a helpless baby. And this new order where where God dispenses with his glory and his, he lays aside his glory. That's what the song says, doesn't it? It's what Philippians 2 says. He laid aside his glory and his majesty, made himself nothing, made himself a man being found as a human being. And then he became obedient to death, etc. 
this reversal, this kind of role reversal, where God says, the might and the power and the splendor that you've seen now becomes almost nothing, just a baby in obscurity, in an unknown town, in an unknown time, to an unmarried mother. That role reversal is a pattern that we see in Jesus' ministry and a pattern, I think, that he calls us to. Let's just explain what I mean by that. That Jesus changes what we consider to be important and says that that might not be that important. And he takes what we consider to be unimportant and he says, actually, you know what? That, to me, that's really important. He turns it round. And this vulnerability, this helpless Jesus, the baby, sets a new pattern where Jesus says, don't be obsessed by the things of the world, the ads, the taglines, the things that bother you. See to the things that matter to me. And often they're the small things that we don't consider, that we easily miss in life. A few examples from Jesus' ministry. So on violence, when Jesus was arrested, Peter takes hands of angels and they will at once come to me. Don't you know that? This is not the way. On, uh, on worry, we worry about so much, don't we? I worry. I'm a worrier. Worry about things in the middle of the night. And God says, all those things that bother you, think about this. Consider the birds of the air, says Jesus. They neither sow nor reap, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed as one of these. Which of you, by worrying, can add an hour to your life? Think about these things, says Jesus. Or on greatness, there's that episode, isn't there, in Matthew and Luke, Luke 9, where the disciples, there's a walk, they're walking along the dusty road and they're all arguing about who's the greatest, the disciples. And Jesus is somewhere in front. We don't know what they said. Could it be, well, I'm, I, Jesus obviously always sits next to me, but I'm the one who looks after the money. Yeah, but have you seen Jesus comes to me when he wants something done? They're all arguing about who's the greatest. And they get home, and Jesus said, says, what were you talking about back there on the road? Well, what were you talking about? And nobody wants to say anything, because they were talking about which one was the greatest. And Jesus brings a child and says, the least among you is the greatest. If you want to be great, think about becoming like a child. The least among you is the greatest. It's quite an astonishing thing to say. I wonder today, who is the least among us in this church? Who is the least among us? Is it the tiniest baby? Is it the one or the ones who just get on with their work and the things that they need to do for this church and never ask for anything back? Is it the one or the ones that we, most people avoid because we get dragged into that conversation which we don't want to bother with? Who is the least among us? Because you better watch out, because God says they might be the greatest, whoever that person is. Says Jesus, you'd better watch out. And on wealth and riches, we talked about stuff and gathering stuff, haven't we? And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Don't store up riches for yourselves here on earth where rust and moths will destroy and thieves will break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven where rust and moths will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal because where your treasure is, that's really where your heart is. You might say this and that, Lord, Lord, etc. But where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. I know that. And it's all wonderful, poetic, flowing language that we can enjoy as well, isn't it? Um, So, Jesus' words are a great comfort to us. They are a great, and they are meant to be. They also should just make us pause and reflect and think this idea of greatness being wrapped in a vulnerable, helpless baby is the precedent for most of what Jesus said, actually. It's the whole idea of Jesus' teaching. Jesus changes what we consider to be important and unimportant. And I love this, uh, sorry, this, way, this quote, which I'll read out from Jeff Lucas, a, a fairly well-known Christian speaker of many decades and writer. And he says this, says, Jesus points to a new order of things where the outsiders are in and where those who smugly believe themselves to be at the centre of God's purposes suddenly find they have excluded themselves from the party. Where the experts are the fools, where children are the wise ones, where angels visit shepherds and where women are the first resurrection witnesses. Where the experts are the fools, I will make foolish the wisdom of your world, says God. I will frustrate the wisdom of the wise. I will destroy the intelligence of the intelligent, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God doesn't think much of our wisdom. Where the experts are the fools, where children are the wise ones. If you cannot enter the kingdom of God God like a child, you will not enter. What does that mean? Think about that. Where angels visit shepherds, ordinary labourers, working men. Not highly paid, educated folks. And where women, unacceptable in the first century as witnesses in court, are the first to see the resurrected Jesus. It's a reversal. And uh, the idea that John brings us in in, uh, chapter 1 of his gospel, this dramatic opening... Is just completely turns upside down the, the view, the Hebrew view of the scriptures to that point. That God, in his magnificence, in, in his splendor, in his glory, in his majesty, in his power, becomes, would become, an obscure, tiny, poor baby. So, to finish, what was all that about? I would say... Try reading one of those passages, whether it's Isaiah 9 or Luke 1 or the one we did, John chapter 1, this Christmas. Maybe on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. But read it slowly. Really soak, let the word soak in. Don't use a commentary or a guide or somebody's view on it. Just let scripture speak for itself. Let God's Holy Spirit speak to you from that passage. And savour the words. And enjoy God's love, supremely demonstrated in the baby of Bethlehem. Terms and conditions do not apply.